Hi, you're listening to Bonus Points, the official podcast of Mr. Astle's theology class. Join us as we put out into the deep and explore the world of theology and beyond. Today, we're talking about the Magi, what we know about them and what they can teach us today. Let's begin. Hello there, Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. This episode is coming out on January 5th, 2023, and I say Merry Christmas because we are still celebrating the Christmas season. I probably sound like a broken record this time of year, but for us Catholics, the Christmas season begins on Christmas. While the world is tearing down the trees, we are just getting the party started. Now, tomorrow on January 6th, we also celebrate the Feast of the Epiphany, though in the U.S. it's usually moved to Sunday, which this year is January 8th. Epiphany comes from the Greek word for manifestation, and this day particularly celebrates the arrival of the Magi, the manifestation of the Son of God to the Gentiles. So, it seems fitting that we spend some time talking about the Magi, the wise men, the three kings of the Christmas story. What do we know about them? What can we guess about them? And what deeper meaning can we find here? Before I get into that, remember to subscribe to Bonus Points wherever you're listening, and check out bonuspointspodcast.com for lots of information and extra resources. Now, when it comes to the Magi, there's a lot we think we know. After all, every nativity set comes with three little figurines, each carrying a small box or jar. We stick them in the stable, maybe next to Joseph. Maybe they get relegated to the sideline just outside the stable. You may have even heard their names. Caspar, or Gaspar, Melchior, and Balthasar. Like many parts of the Christmas story, our imagination tends to be more informed by the Christmas cards than the biblical text itself. Now, I'm not saying that's a bad thing, of course, just that there are a lot of things that we assume are in the Bible that aren't. So let's start there. We've mentioned before that of the four Gospels, only two give us the Christmas story, Matthew and Luke. And the Magi are only mentioned in Matthew. Let's see what the text says. This is coming from Matthew 2. Now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, For so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will govern my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly, and ascertained from them what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring bring me word, that I too may come and worship him. When they had heard the king, they went their way. And lo, the star which they had seen in the east went before them, till it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, They departed to their own country by another way. Okay, 
So there's simultaneously a lot going on here, and maybe not as much as we'd expect. Let's start with what we didn't hear. Even though we sing We Three Kings, we neither heard them referred to as kings, nor was the number three given. Later in the episode, we'll see why it isn't out of the question to call them kings, but what about the number three? Well, the number three probably originated with the number of gifts they brought, since they brought gold, frankincense, and myrrh, but the Bible never actually tells us how many there were. We can safely assume there was more than one, because Matthew uses the plural noun magoi to refer to them instead of the singular magas. But it was probably more than three, on account of how dangerous it was to travel long distances at the time. The wise men mentioned here were probably traveling as part of a larger group or part of an armed caravan. If we look back to the early church, we see a variety of numbers proposed. Early Christian art shows anywhere from one to eight, and the most common tradition in the East is that there were 12 wise men. We also don't hear any mention of them being there at the manger on Christmas night. In fact, Matthew makes it clear that they arrived later and presented their gifts in the house that the Holy Family was living in. So, if we're just going by what the text of Matthew says, we don't know that there were three of them, we don't know that they were kings, and they almost certainly were not laying their gifts at the manger. Well, then what the heck do we know? Let's start with the noun that Matthew uses to describe them, since that'll tell us a lot. Many translations, including the one that I read a moment ago, the Revised Standard Version Catholic Edition, refer to the gift bearers as wise men, but this means a little more than just men who are wise. Other translations preserve the Latin magi, with the singular being magus. This was the Latin word that St. Jerome chose to translate the Greek magoi, which is the plural of magas. Originally, the term magoi or magi referred to members of a specific Persian tribe. In the 5th century BC, the Greek historian Herodotus referred to the Magi as one of the six tribes of the Medes. The Magi were to the Medo-Persian Empire what the Levites were to Israel. They were not just a tribe, but a priestly tribe. Herodotus also said that whenever a sacrifice was to be offered, a Magus had to be present to pray over the offering. Along with their priestly duties, the Magi also developed a reputation for being scholars and being able to interpret omens. In fact, it is in this capacity that we see them show up a few times in the book of Daniel. For example, when Nebuchadnezzar had strange dreams in Daniel 2, he initially calls upon a group of magi to interpret the dream for him. Herodotus also tells us about a battle that Xerxes of Persia was planning to fight against the Greeks. Before leaving, he asked the magi to interpret the stars to predict the outcome of the battle. So, from the start, the Magi have been associated with reading the stars, as we see them do in Matthew. Also, for what it's worth, the Magi in that scenario told Xerxes that the battle was going to go in his favor, and it didn't. Oops. Another fun fact, over time, a verb developed to refer to the practices of the Magi, including divination. This term, Magia, would eventually become the English word magic. Anyway, by the first century, the term magi was used to refer to anybody who practiced magia, whether they were a member of the Persian tribe of the magi or not. For example, Acts of the Apostles refers to two men as magi because of their arcane practices, 
Simon Magus, who offers to buy the Holy Spirit, and a Magus named Bar-Jesus. Neither one is Persian. Simon Magus is Samaritan, and Bar-Jesus was Jewish. So when Matthew refers to Magi appearing in Bethlehem, that actually could mean a pretty wide range of things. While they could be members of the Persian tribe of the Magi, that's not a given. The term had become generalized enough that Magi on its own just refers to a group of people that practiced Magia, like astrology and divination. Thankfully, that's not all we can know about the Magi that adore the infant Christ. If we look closely at the text, we can surmise a few additional details. We'll start by trying to figure out where they came from and who they were, then we'll try to put the timeline together and see how their arrival fits into the other stories of the infancy narrative. Finally, we'll briefly consider the star that prompted the journey in the first place, though when it comes to the star, there's enough to say that it could probably be its own episode. It won't be, but it could be. But let's start with the question of the Magi's origin. Scripture doesn't tell us, aside from saying that they were Magi from the east, meaning east of Judah. Scholars have identified three regions as being the best candidates. The first candidate is Persia, or modern Iran. They could have been Magi in the most original sense of the word, meaning members of the Magi clan. Another possibility is Babylon, or modern Iraq. Finally, sometimes their home is identified as Arabia, which is not identical with the modern country of Saudi Arabia. Biblical Arabia would have included the entire Arabian Peninsula and then some. Now, it seems that the Magi were familiar with the Jewish Messianic prophecies, which implies that they had some contact with Judaism. That doesn't help us narrow it down, though, since all three of those locations would have had Jewish communities that were part of the diaspora, or the dispersion of Jews living outside the Holy Land. When we look at the Church Fathers, we see all three mentioned as possibilities. The earliest mention we have was from St. Justin Martyr in his dialogue with Trypho, written around 160 AD. He said that the Magi came from Arabia. About 50 years later, Tertullian agreed. He pointed out that both gold and frankincense were associated with Arabia. Though both of those were widely traded, so that's not a particularly strong reason. But around the same time as Tertullian, St. Clement of Alexandria said that the Magi came from Persia. And that explanation stuck. Persia became the most widespread answer from that point on, and most early art depicts the Magi wearing Persian clothing. Personally, I go back and forth between Arabia and Persia. On the one hand, when scripture refers to the East, it means Arabia more often than it means Persia, and Matthew was writing for an audience that knew the Old Testament well. On the other hand, it's hard to disagree with so many of the church fathers. Ultimately, I suppose it doesn't matter too much, but it's interesting to speculate. Okay, so they probably came from Arabia, Babylon, or Persia, and most traditions favor Persia over the other two. What else can we know about the Magi? Well, even though the song calls them the Three Kings, Scripture itself never refers to them as such. But it might not be far off, since the details we're given strongly imply that the Magi are rich and important. Consider the fact that they're able to make the long journey from the east to Judea. A trip like this would be expensive to finance and would require the ability to take off work for at least several months. The gifts they bring, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, are pretty pricey, which also suggests rich magi. 
They are also able to secure an audience with King Herod pretty easily, which implies that they're important people. If not kings, at least dignitaries. Finally, if they were Persian, there's a decent chance they were kings as well. It was not uncommon in that area for magi to be given authority over small regional kingdoms. Now, let's revisit the story and see what happens. Again, our imagination tends to be more informed by the Christmas cards than the text, so let's pay attention to the details. Again, this is from Matthew 2. Now, when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. Okay, let's talk about this star. Sometimes we think of the star as a sort of beacon or celestial GPS, just kind of floating along for the Magi to follow until it hovered above the manger. But that's not necessarily what the text says. Notice how the Magi describe it. We have seen his star in the east. There is a heated scholarly debate about the best way to translate that. In the east is a literal way of translating the Greek ente anatole. However, this expression could also be rendered as at its rising, referring to how stars rise in the east as the earth rotates. Some have also proposed that ente anatole was a technical term referring to a star's helical rising or when a star becomes visible above the horizon briefly before dawn. In any case, what the Magi are saying is that they observed a star that indicated that a new king of the Jews had been born. Now, we don't know exactly what they saw, though dozens of theories have been proposed, but it would seem that the star's initial appearance demonstrated normal behavior for stars. After all, the Magi were able to interpret the star as a sign that the new king of the Jews had been born. If this star was a never-before-seen celestial phenomenon, they wouldn't have known what it meant. But the Magi did claim to be able to discern hidden knowledge by observing the positions and interactions of different stars and constellations. They didn't believe that the stars controlled events, that was a later idea from the Greeks, but they did believe that the stars revealed important events, especially when it came to kings. Different stars and constellations were associated with kings or different regions. So, for example, seeing a star associated with kings rising in conjunction with a constellation associated with Judea would be interpreted as a sign that a new king had been born in Judea. This is why the Magi do not go to Bethlehem at first, but they go to Jerusalem. Why? Well, because their interpretation of the star had told them that a new king of the Jews had been born and they naturally assumed that this king was either a son or grandson of Herod. So they go to the palace in Jerusalem. We know from both scripture and history that Herod was a paranoid dude. The atmosphere was buzzing with anticipation of the Messiah, the new son of David to be king, and Herod knew that it wasn't him. As much as he tried to present himself as a candidate for the Messiah, he was not a descendant of David. In fact, he was an Edomite, and so many didn't even consider him to be fully Jewish. This is why we see in verse 3 that Herod became greatly troubled when he heard the message. If the real Messiah king is here, then Herod's going to be out of a job. And when Herod got paranoid, he also got violent, which is probably why all Jerusalem was troubled with him. Herod summons the biblical scholars and asks them where the Messiah was going to be born according to the prophecies. They tell him Bethlehem. Another fun fact, 
About 30 years later, a crowd actually rejects the possibility that Jesus could be the Messiah because they knew the Messiah was going to be born in Bethlehem, but they assumed Jesus had been born in Nazareth. Anyway, Herod receives the report of his theological think tank and sends the Magi to find this newborn king and bring him back to Jerusalem. The text continues, When they had heard the king, they went their way. And lo, the star which they had seen in the east went before them till it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. This also doesn't necessarily imply that the star was bobbing along the path in front of them, but it does seem to suggest something beyond typical star behavior. Scholarly opinions are split. Some see this as clear evidence of a miraculous event, and others claim that the text doesn't go that far. The Catholic Encyclopedia, for example, takes the former approach. It says, Only a miraculous phenomenon could have been the Star of Bethlehem. It was like the miraculous pillar of fire which stood in the camp by night during Israel's exodus, or to the brightness of God which shone round about the shepherds, or to the light from heaven which shone round about the stricken Saul. Scott Hahn also holds the miraculous star position, and explains it in the chapter on the Magi from his book about Christmas, Joy to the World. Apologist Jimmy Aiken, on the other hand, says, Many see the star as a supernatural manifestation that moved around in the sky in a way stars don't. But this isn't what Matthew says. He never claims that they were following the star, only that it went, only that it was ahead of them as they went to Bethlehem, and that it stood over the house. This was a providential coincidence. Personally, my mind isn't made up on the matter, but here's what I tend to think. I think that the initial appearance of the star was natural, in the sense that it was not beyond the normal behavior of stars, though it was providentially arranged by God. Once the Magi left Jerusalem, the star displayed supernatural movement in order to indicate the house that they should enter. This would go beyond just going before them, especially since they already knew they were going to Bethlehem. Anyway, the Magi find the Holy Family and present their gifts. Then they are warned in a dream not to return to Herod, but to go home a different way. Eventually Herod realizes that they are not coming back, and he orders the infamous Massacre of the Innocents. In an effort to make sure he kills this newborn king, he orders every male in Bethlehem under two years old to be killed. The church commemorates these children on December 28th, even calling them the first martyrs, because they were the first to give their lives for Christ. The Holy Family escapes this massacre because Joseph had also been warned in a dream. He wakes up and doesn't even wait until morning to get Jesus and Mary packed and on the road to Egypt, where they stay until Herod dies. This is known as the flight to Egypt. This might be a good time to ask when exactly the Magi showed up in Bethlehem. Matthew 2.16 says that Herod ordered the execution of male children under age 2 based on the time ascertained from the Magi. In other words, he asks them when they saw the star rising, which would have corresponded with Jesus' birth. This means that Herod could have been ordering the slaughter of the innocents up to two years after Jesus was born. So when did the Magi show up at the Holy House? Well, Matthew definitively says that it's not Christmas night. After all, he specifically says that he finds Mary and Jesus in the house, not the cave or the stable. If the star rising corresponded to Jesus' birth, 
and they left the east when they saw it rise, then they would be arriving in Judea several months after Jesus was born. Factor in the time they spent in Jerusalem and how long it took for Herod to realize they weren't coming back, and yeah, it starts to add up why they didn't, or why Herod would order the slaughter of any child under age two. Speaking of timelines, how does this fit into the other events the Gospels give us about Jesus' early childhood? Like we said at the top of the episode, Matthew and Luke both give us infancy narratives, but they don't give us the exact same stories. In fact, both Matthew and Luke give us five distinct episodes from the infancy narrative. Two of the five are common between both of them, and the other three each are unique. Both Matthew and Luke begin with the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem, and end with the return of the Holy Family to Nazareth. In between, Matthew tells us about the adoration of the Magi, the flight to Egypt, and the massacre of the innocents. Luke tells us about the adoration of the shepherds, the circumcision of Jesus, and the presentation in the temple and purification of Mary. At first, it can seem tricky to reconcile these two narratives, but there's actually no contradiction here. Rather than get into arguments about different possibilities, I'm just going to present what I think is the most realistic timeline. I'll have links in the show notes to a few resources where you can dig into some of the different theories if you're interested. Okay, so the story obviously begins with Jesus being born in the cave in Bethlehem. The shepherds are tending their flocks by night, and so they arrive at the cave shortly after Jesus was born. The Magi begin their journey from the east. The Holy Family probably stayed in Bethlehem for a while. In fact, we get the impression that they intended to live in Bethlehem, probably thinking that the son of David ought to be raised in the city of David. On the eighth day, Jesus was circumcised and named by Joseph. Forty days after Jesus was born, the Holy Family goes to Jerusalem to complete what the law required. Mary had to be purified and Jesus had to be presented as the firstborn. Now, it's possible that the Magi have arrived in Jerusalem by this point, but it seems more likely that they're still on their way. Either way, the Magi almost certainly have not given their gifts to the Holy Family yet. The fact that Joseph offers two turtle doves in the temple indicates that they were poor, meaning they probably didn't just get a bunch of gold. So the adoration of the Magi almost certainly happens after the presentation in the temple. The Holy Family returns to Bethlehem, where the Magi find them when they arrive. At this point, Joseph takes the family to Egypt to avoid the massacre of the innocents. When Herod dies, the Holy Family returns to Judea, but Joseph is afraid because one of Herod's sons ruled in Judea, so he goes instead to the northern region of Galilee. The family settles in Joseph and Mary's hometown of Nazareth. Now, critics may point out Luke 2.39, which says, And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, referring to the presentation in the temple, They returned to Galilee, to their own city, Nazareth. But this doesn't say that they immediately went to Nazareth. They could have gone back to Bethlehem, then to Egypt, then to Nazareth. That wouldn't contradict the text. This wording also makes the most sense for Luke, because he didn't say anything about the flight to Egypt. So, when it comes to the Magi, from a historical or scriptural perspective, there are many open questions. But more importantly, What spiritual significance do the Magi have for us? What's the point? Well, I'd like to highlight a few different elements here that teach us something. First, we'll look at the three gifts and what they reveal about Jesus. 
Then we'll talk about the significance of the Magi being Gentiles. Finally, we'll talk about how God revealed himself to them. Let's start with those gifts. You know about gold and frankincense, but wait, there's myrrh. Ah, don't you love it? Anyway, all three would have been expensive gifts suitable to honor a king. But there's also symbolism that the Magi themselves probably didn't realize. First of all, you know what gold is. It's a precious metal. It's associated with kings. This symbolizes Christ's royalty. Frankincense, or just incense for short, is a hardened plant resin that is burned along with sacrifices. We still use this today in the Mass. The incense that we burn at Mass is primarily made up of frankincense. Among other things, incense smoke symbolizes our prayers rising to God, so it always accompanied sacrifices in the Old Testament. In fact, the temple had a golden altar specifically used for offering incense to God. Offering incense to the infant Christ would point to his divinity. We're probably the least familiar with myrrh, but it was very common in the ancient world. Like frankincense, it was derived from plant resin. It had a variety of uses, but one of the most common was an embalming agent. Anointing bodies with myrrh would slow down the decomposition process and mask some of the smell. This gift symbolized Jesus' humanity, since it is a sign of mortality. The church father Origen summed up these symbols when he said, Gold as to a king, myrrh as to one who is mortal, and incense as to God. Not only that, but all three of these things are associated with the temple, which points to Jesus being the fulfillment of the temple. We've already mentioned how frankincense was burned in the holy place, The inside of the temple, as well as all the objects used in the holy place, were coated with gold, and even myrrh was was used as one of the spices mixed with oil and used for sacred anointing. In Exodus, God gives Moses the plans for the tabernacle, the tent of meeting. Later, this would become the temple in Jerusalem. This temple had two primary purposes. It was where God dwelled with Israel, and it was where sacrifices were to be offered. Jesus is the fulfillment of the temple because he is Emmanuel, God with us, God dwelling with us as one of us. Jesus is also the location of perfect sacrifice because he is the perfect sacrifice. The gifts of the Magi show us that Jesus is the God-man and the perfect priest-king in the line of David. I mentioned that the Magi were probably unaware of this symbolism, and that's largely because they were not Jewish. Depending on where they came from, they were either polytheistic pagans or monotheistic Zoroastrians. Either way, they were not part of the covenant. This is important because this is a concrete reminder that Jesus came to draw all nations to himself. The Jews as the chosen people are like the firstborn sons of God. God reveals himself to them first, but ultimately the plan is for everybody to come into the family. The prophets speak often about how the Messiah will draw all people to himself and how all the kings of the world will come to know the true God. With the arrival of the Magi, we start to see that fulfilled. What the Jewish king Herod missed, the Gentile kings see. And think about how God draws the Magi. He doesn't appear first in a mystical vision or a dramatic theophany. God draws them using their reason and their knowledge of the natural world. Sometimes people think faith and reason are opposed to each other, but we forget that God gave us both. 
In his encyclical Fides et Ratio, Pope John Paul II describes faith and reason as the two wings by which the soul soars to the contemplation of God. We call what the Magi receive natural revelation, how God reveals himself through the universe he created, and how that revelation is accessible to anybody, even Magi who are not part of the covenant. But reason alone isn't enough. The Magi needed scripture to find Jesus. Reason's a good start, and faith never contradicts reason, but reason alone was not sufficient. Reason was enough to get the Magi to Judea, but they went to Jerusalem first. Once they were there, it was the biblical scholars who pointed them to Bethlehem. Finally, perhaps the greatest lesson we can take from the story of the Magi is what it means to be journeying toward God. In his Epiphany homily from 2013, the late Pope Benedict XVI says it so well, so I'll close with his words, especially as this episode releases on the day of his funeral, may God grant him eternal rest. He said, These men who set out towards the unknown were, in any event, men with a restless heart, men driven by a restless quest for God and the salvation of the world. They were filled with expectation, not satisfied with their secure income and their respectable place in society. They were looking for something greater. They were no doubt learned men, quite knowledgeable about the heavens, and probably possessed of a fine philosophical formation. But they desired more than simply knowledge about things. They wanted, above all else, to know what is essential. Their outward pilgrimage was an expression of their inward journey, the inner pilgrimage of their hearts. They were men who sought God and were ultimately on the way towards him. They were seekers after God. That's going to do it for today's episode. Before I go, I have a lot of good resources to offer you this time around. As always, you can find these resources in the show notes on bonuspointspodcast.com. While you're there, you can also find links to every platform where this show is available, though if you're listening to this, you already found at least one. If you check out the notes for today's episode, you will find a link to Matthew 2, which is where we find the story of the Magi. I've included both the translation that I read in the episode, as well as an interlinear Bible, so that you can see the Greek as well. I'm also linking to Daniel 2, where you can see Magi appear in Nebuchadnezzar's court in Babylon. I'm linking to three sources that gave a lot of the general background and information for this episode. The Catholic Encyclopedia's article on the Magi, Jimmy Aiken's article on Catholic Answers called Mysteries of the Magi, and an episode from his podcast, Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World, also titled Mysteries of the Magi. I'll have links to some of the ancient sources I referenced, like Histories by Herodotus, Justin Martyr's Dialogue with Trypho, Tertullian's Against Marcion, Clement of Alexandria's Stromata, and Origen's Contra Celsum. You'll also find Scott Hahn's book about the infancy narratives, Joy to the World, and the third volume of Pope Benedict XVI's Jesus of Nazareth series, specifically about the infancy narratives. To put together a timeline of Jesus' early childhood, I used the Catholic Encyclopedia article titled Chronology of the Life of Jesus, as well as an article from Benedictine College's publication, Ex Corde. Finally, I'm linking to Pope Benedict's epiphany homily that I quoted at the end there. I'm Mr. Astle. Until next time, 
Thank you for joining us once again as we continue every episode to put out into the deep to explore the world of theology and beyond.